This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. My name is Alex Johnson, and today we have a very special guest episode. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by one of my favorite investors and thinkers in the FinTech space, Charles Birnbaum, partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Charles, thanks for joining me. Thanks to be here. One of my favorite podcasts, and I'm an avid reader of everything you put out there. So uh, I've been, been excited to do this for a while. Crow understands that certain moments matter more for fintech companies, whether it's partnering with a bank, moving into a new market, or going public. Visit www.crow.com fintech to discover how Crow can help fintech companies like yours find value in volatility. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. The impetus for this, as I'll explain in a bit, was actually something that you wrote. So we're going to get into that in a moment. But before we do, for those who may be listening who are a little less familiar with yourself and with Bessemer, would you mind giving just a quick two minutes on your background and then what your firm does? So I've been with Bessemer for a little over 10 years. Prior to my time in venture capital, I started my career in technology, investment banking, and equity capital markets. So recovered Wall Street person. I always (laughs) say, I feel like there's like an AA group for, or the equivalent of or something like that for people who left Wall Street. But some of those lessons come through still in the day-to-day of, of investing in fintech, that's for sure. And then coming out of business school after my time on Wall Street, I was one of the first employees of a startup here in New York called Foursquare, which was early leader in mobile, social, location-based services, and still a data business today, and had various product and business development roles there before joining Bessemer in 2013. Bessemer is a global, multi-stage venture capital firm, one of the oldest venture capital firms in the market, um, going back many decades. Mm -hmm. And here at Bessemer, we organize ourselves by themes and theses, not by even industries. I happen to have always been focused on financial services. I don't even call it fintech because sometimes these businesses are, are business model innovation, not not pure technology innovation. Well, I, I know you and I are going to get into that a little bit, but after 10 years here, I now represent us on 13 boards at companies I've invested in and have another several companies I, I work closely with at, at all stages. And we're currently investing out of a $3 billion core fund. You're a busy man. So I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to chat with me. As I hinted at before, the reason I wanted to talk among many, and the fact that you and I have not done a podcast yet together, but one of the specific reasons why I wanted to do this now was that you published a piece a while ago with some colleagues that was titled The Five Waves of Fintech. And for those of you who haven't read this yet, I will be sure to share a link with this along with the podcast. Make sure that you go read the full piece. It's really, really interesting. And Basically, it's an overview of the past 20 plus years of fintech and financial services. And the contention of the piece is that it's really difficult to disrupt an industry or predict how it's going to evolve if you don't understand its history. Now, as listeners of this podcast will know, I went to school originally to be a history teacher. So any argument that's grounded in you have to understand history in order to understand the present, in order to be able to predict the future was always going to be something that sort of spoke to me personally. But I also think just sort of at a broad sort of analysis level, 
it's a really interesting way of organizing the last couple of decades of fintech history and a really interesting way of sort of understanding where we are in fintech and financial services today. So I want to spend this podcast kind of getting into each one of those five waves in some detail and having you kind of walk us through those. But before we get to that, I'm just curious if you can kind of characterize the overall thought process that went into creating the piece. I mean, the idea of waves as a metaphor really struck me as a very interesting and somewhat unique way to to think about fintech. Why is it the the framing that you decided to use? Yeah, first of all, it's really interesting that, that that's your background because I studied history really in your undergrad as well. Okay, well, okay, that 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 speaks to like why we're why we're yeah, on the same it, page. Here. Exactly, okay. and I don't know. I tend to, and I think any venture capitalist, it's such a long term investment when you're entering into to that marriage with an entrepreneur or a set of entrepreneurs. We're really along for these journeys with them for quite a while. Whether we're starting at the seed or Series A or even B or C, you're typically investing for 7, 10, 12 years yeah. before the companies are really achieving a lot of the goals that you, that you hope to set out, particularly when you're going after an industry like financial services that that tends to move more slowly when you're doing things that are real. And we'll get to that again <laughs> later. But this exercise, I think it was a little bit, obviously the market over the last two years has been through a tremendous couple shocks. But I think as, as interest rates you know, started to rise dramatically and companies across the market tried to do more with less, cut costs, had so many levers they could pull on over the last uh, year, year and a half, you know, raise a little bit more capital from existing investors, cut OpEx by, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50%, mm-hmm. charge your, your customers more, tap into the debt markets that have always been there for venture back companies. A lot of companies were busy doing those things over the last couple of years. And We've been really working hard with our portfolio companies to to just help give specific advice in each case on how to navigate that. At the same time, you know, I just was kind of reflecting on on the last my ten years sure. doing this in venture. I know there's many people who've been investing in fintech a lot longer than that, and I had a great mentor here at Bessemer. His name is Rob Davis, and he was investing in fintech before it was called fintech. So I had just learned a lot of these lessons from him when I got started. He had invested in in businesses like Gerson Lerman Group and Betterment and Zopa, you know, when a lot of people thought that these industries were not really a good use of time for venture capitalists. And I think in terms of just like the, the way we frame the piece was just trying to think about these different periods of innovation. Entrepreneurs tend to lead you to the water. Venture capitalists don't come up with these ideas. We observe them mm-hmm. and we try and then come up with an independent thesis and that's somewhat intellectually honest mm-hmm. before you pull the trigger and get involved for 7, 10, 12 years. So we tried to, I don't know, I thought it was just an interesting way to, to explain what we had been investing in over the period I had been here. It just was more of a, a fun thing to do. <laughs> gave us a chance to highlight some of our portfolio companies that are doing really well, but are less well-known because they're not direct-to-consumer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these esoteric B2B software companies that are selling into these massive opportunities within insurance or mortgage or wealth management, B2B payments. I mean, there's so many different end industries and, and end markets here. That was really the intent of the piece. And and then we ended up with what we ended up with and we can get into it. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. So as you said, I mean, the the idea was to sort of be able to almost categorize all of these different kind of mini eras within the last 20 or so years of fintech and financial services. So 
Let's just run through them one at a time and kind of talk about each one. So for the first one, wave one, what is wave one? Wave one wasn't this really distinct period of time. I think many people were investing in disruptive models in financial services yeah. long before people had coined the term fintech or were really talking about, in many ways, I think when people use the term fintech, which sometimes frustrates me, they're really only talking <laughs> about things that touch small businesses or end consumers and, and things that people can really understand sure. who don't understand market structure and the way risk is actually shared. And the way we actually like to think about it often, and whenever anybody new joins our team, I, I like to get on the whiteboard and, and really draw a horizontal line. And on the far left of that line, you start with distribution, right? How is the customer getting acquired, whether that's a direct-to-consumer advertisement whether that's a broker, whether that's an advisor, whether that's a channel partnership or uh, you engaging at the point of sale in e-commerce. There's so many different ways to acquire that customer, but there's a whole part of financial services to understand there. And then on the far right side of that horizontal line is risk. And in the insurance market, that ends in the in the Lloyds of London and reinsurance. In yep. payments, it ends with the banks uh, that are providing the rails and taking on some of the risk in chargebacks and, and ACH fraud and all of the new types of fraud that are starting to come up in the world of RTP, in lending markets, it's securitization markets like this. And in the middle, there's so many different elements of a value chain. And you could do that horizontal line for the insurance world or the mortgage world or BAB payments. And I like to think about it in those ways. And I think in the early first wave of fintech, as I would call it, it was very much Isn't business model innovation, less like really interesting software being developed that was cutting edge. And so when I think about things that we invested in, businesses that we called out in the piece like GLG, which was disrupting equity research fundamentally, or a business like United Capital, which was disrupting the RIA world and how investment advisors were thinking about their own careers and joining a platform that was different than the bolt bracket shops. There can be business model innovation that, that stems from macro changes, whether it's the interest rate environment, global financial shocks, and the lack of trust in some of these organizations. So that's how we thought about wave one. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's really interesting how you are pointing out that like there was this business model innovation or disruption that happened well before technology. Now, obviously, like technology has been a part of financial services for a long, long time. But it seems as though technology as a wedge to disrupt businesses hadn't quite been happening when you were talking about some of these wave one companies. And I thought it was particularly interesting in the piece how you pointed out that a lot of the disruptions in this wave one seem to be somewhat correlated with like broader disruptions in the economy or macroeconomic conditions. Like a lot of these came out of 2008 and the financial crisis and some of the sort of gaps or maybe holes that were sort of exposed in some of these legacy business models. That's actually one of the opportunities for entrepreneurs, but it's also one of the biggest challenges as an investor, because sometimes there are these macro shocks or changes in the financial environment that lead to unbelievable opportunities. Sometimes there's short arbitrage opportunities that brilliant entrepreneurs can capture and generate really interesting businesses off of. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're enduring and much longer term. But I, mean, I think about even just with interest rates rising, there was an, a, a number of early stage startups over the last couple of years that are starting to transition to helping 
small businesses and consumers understand that there's an alternative to equity investments and, and tapping into fixed income yield. Now you see many of the fintechs of the last 10 to 15 years starting to, to figure out how to do that. There's a whole slew of infrastructure providers that are propping up to do that. Mm-hmm. That seems like you could have a, a durable advantage if interest rates persist, but you have to you have to have a point of view on market conditions and, and somewhat of a macro point of view if you're going to be playing in some of these spaces. So sometimes these things are structural. So to use the wealth management example, I think we as a firm between 10 and 15 years ago, decided that investment advice was not going away, but it, charging 120, 150 basis points for undifferentiated advice where you were providing a real service, but not generating alpha, that was just going to change. Uh, and that led to our investments in Betterment and United Capital. And we continue to feel like the wealth management industry is ripe for a lot of disruption. And I'm spending a lot of time there personally. But I think those are kind of more structural changes. And the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 led to even more dramatic opportunity for people to try new models because they had lost trust in the existing bull yeah. bracket. So that's one where both of those kind of concentric circles of the macro disruption and the fact that the business model was actually broken permanently coincided and led to kind of what I would call a roadmap for investing for 10, 20 years. And I think that exists in B2B payments where it's insane that so much capital still flows through these traditional rails that were set up in the 1960s and 70s. And there's so much promise <laughs> for business applications and, and real real world problems to be solved by faster money movement. So, you know, sometimes it takes a global shock to spur the change, but sometimes it just takes a great entrepreneur to come up with an interesting hook to get started. I mean, you could think about what Mike Cagney did at SoFi, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. in that environment, just seeing that those students were being poorly underwritten and there was an arbitrage between government and private student loan debt, but then turning that into a full-fledged bank and multi-service financial services company that it is today, that's kind of the example where you take a short-term opportunity, but turn it into a longer term just with great execution over time and the rebundling that I'm sure we'll talk about again in this discussion. I think that's a point well made too, right? A lot of these opportunities are opportunities in time that eventually kind of close themselves, but they can be a wedge into building a broader business. And it seems like so much in financial services, despite technology and all of these other things that we've been working on over the last 20 years, a lot of it still comes back to brand, trust, earning the right to win with customers, and these sort of moments in time where you have these opportunities to disrupt, allow you the opportunity to then have great execution and build that brand and sort of earn that trust. So I think it's a really, really good point. Okay, so we talked about legacy business models as one area of attack. What's wave two? So wave two is what most people think of as the last 10 years yeah, of yeah. Mm-hmm. which is kind of the great unbundling. You know, this is not a secret. This was not some brilliant insight we had as a firm. It was pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, you took the homepage of B of A or Wells Fargo or any major bank and anything on there, there was a brand new brand being created, often with a slew of, of traditional partners behind it, which is part of the interesting nature of, of this industry, right? I mean, it, it, for anyone to get started, you're working with legacy players to get going. And it goes all the way back to kind of simple and, and, and some of the first disruptors that were going after one element of this, and then Zopa and Lending Club and Prosper and SoFi and all of these 
these early players, I mean, you can include Venmo in that bucket, and they were taking one element of what a what a bank should or would offer and creating just a 10x better experience for that, either with much, much lower cost or just a magical consumer experience. <laughs> I mean, you take Betterment as an example, just dramatically slashing what you needed to pay for a diversified bucket of investment products and a set it and forget it philosophy, very different from the Robinhood hook of free trading that wasn't actually free, if you really understood the nuances of, of payment for order flow, but still a brilliant customer acquisition strategy, and they've turned it into much more than that. But the period of unbundling, I mean, as I know many think, wasn't just fueled by the zero interest rate period. Much of it was because it required a lot of capital that needed to be thrown at consumers mm-hmm. to acquire them. And that that was the element of that wave that was really relying on just a boatload of private equity and venture capital flowing into the space. But some of these industries were really right for brand new business models to just attack those elements, whether it was overdraft protection or what was being charged for undifferentiated investment advice or mispriced student loans. I mean, these were fundamentally broken elements of the financial services world that entrepreneurs kind of picked off one by one. That was kind of the period of unbundling. We didn't make a ton of investments during this period, partly because of that capital intensity uh, of these models. I would say Betterment, Enzopa, Toth in Korea, we were in Truebill. I mean, there's, there were examples of businesses that, that we backed early on, because sometimes you just meet an amazing team that has that hook and uh, you get in early enough where you just get paid for that risk mm-hmm. and, and we're a large enough firm to be along for the journey. But we were mostly observing that and questioning whether or not those hooks were durable and whether or not those teams were capable of doing more over time and, and building kind of multifaceted financial services firms off of that wedge. No, and I think that was kind of the core thing I was really curious about with this wave is obviously this is what everyone thinks of when they think of fintech, especially over the last 10 years. The, you know, I think everyone has seen that graphic of Wells Fargo's homepage with all the different logos on it. Like we 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 understand the basic concept here. I do find it really interesting that you guys were relatively, I guess, picky in terms of your investments during this stage, because that's something I've always kind of wondered about with this era is people who have a more sort of first principles, sort of intellectually honest approach to investing in fintech and who've been in the space for a while. I think it felt a little kind of crazy at times to watch. I mean, it was like gratifying in the one sense, because you're right, like overdraft fees are a good example, right? Overdraft fees were ridiculous for a really long time. And there were consumer advocates, there were government regulators, or all kinds of people saying, this is stupid, like, what are we doing? But it didn't change until fintech came in, subsidized by a tremendous amount of outside capital and said, okay, here's what this looks like if you don't have that. Doesn't this just feel better almost societally that we have this now? Yes, okay, and now we've moved on and fintech sort of, I guess, broke that particular revenue pool, right? Like that's kind of gone. Same with trading, trade right. trading fees, right? I mean, Fidelity leads now yeah. with their radio ads lead with no fee trading. No fees, right? I mean, right. That, that exists because of hundreds of millions of dollars venture capital thrown at that problem. Right. So I totally agree. I will say as an investor, it was a really stressful period of time because you would see things that were growing just exponentially with really low customer acquisition costs. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you studied the early data, at a chime. I mean, the CAC payback was phenomenal totally. from the early days. I mean, that early promise that they came up with 
get paid two days earlier, yeah. essentially, by getting access to that cash that was going to be extracted from a payroll account directly to that direct deposit. I mean, that, that was a brilliant hook as well. It- the really stressful thing as an investor was thinking about when the incumbents would react, how would they react, how would they react, how much time would you have to do more with that customer relationship and drive the, the true lo- lifetime value of that customer. Yeah. Because you could always build a pitch or a spreadsheet that explained incredible customer lifetime value because by rebundling, you get there. But proving that out and whether or not that starting point was the right starting point for a great customer relationship mm-hmm. was where a lot of our skepticism came from. And when you start with a lending product or in the insure tech world, offering an insurance policy that might be hard to come by from an incumbent, mm-hmm. that's just a really dangerous starting point. I think we looked at the loss ratios in the case of insure tech. We looked at some of the, the early fraud data from some of the unsecured consumer lending models. Yeah. And frankly, some of the regulatory gray area, right. you know, overdraft protection and other products. And just, it gave us a lot of pause enough to not invest in some of these categories. And then also just asking the question about how are these businesses ultimately going to be valued yeah. five, seven, 10 years down the line? Because once you get past a certain point in consumer fintech, the incumbents really can't buy you because they're valued on book value right. in the banking world. They're valued on combined ratios yeah. and the investment performance on the balance sheet side and the insurance world. And they can't pay the multiples of book or phantom kind of top line metrics that many VCs were paying for a long time. Some of these companies got public and a lot of people made a lot of money. But when you're kind of coming at these things from first principles, it's not always easy to get there. So that was a a really interesting time that I think we're not really in anymore. And it's been an interesting transition. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point about the acquisition one, right? Because I, I sometimes hear sort of idle chatter about like M&A type stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, what if such and such bank bought Chime? And it's like, guys, Chime is too big for anyone to buy now. Not because it's like the third largest bank in the US or anything, but just because of its size relative to how it's valued versus how banks value each other it's out of the range of anyone being able to acquire it and make it make sense. So yeah, I mean, I think it the connection of those two things is really pretty interesting. I will say though that the flip side is, you know, I talked about SoFi as an example. I think there's other examples out there of companies that have just transitioned really beautifully to subscription models in that world where I think they can be valued like any great consumer subscription model without having to lend aggressively and generate that kind of book value story. So I think I know I'm not going to call out any specific names, but I know of companies that kind of made that transition are now cash flow positive. And I think they have their hands on the steering wheel, even though in the middle, there were some rocky times. So I think as rates went up and capital became less available to this community, there's some amazing entrepreneurs that took an initial starting point with millions of users who came in through one of those hooks, whether it was overdraft protection or low trading fees or some of the other challenger bank functionality that has had has propped up credit building, you know, and and have turned it into kind of a full-fledged offering for a community that's not well served by the incumbents. And I think there are quite a few real businesses here now. I just think a lot of the wave that that got to the highest heights were doing things that were unsustainable. I know you hinted at it before. We'll return to the theme, I think, of rebundling in a minute. But before we get there, can you kind of talk us through what wave three is? 
Yeah, wave three, it's kind of the boring stuff, <laughs> but it's the stuff I love. You know, I think I just had the benefit of learning from some of my colleagues who were investing in what we call vertical SaaS, but really just kind of industry-specific software, where I think a lot of the market for a period of time didn't appreciate that a lot of these end markets were big enough. So to use the examples that we'll talk about in embedded fintech, like Toast and Shopify and, and Procore in construction, we have dozens of these companies in our portfolio of Bessemer and the secret's out. So now it's a really attractive market for a lot of venture capitalists and, and entrepreneurs are, have attacked most verticals out there. But I observed that when I first got here. And I think me and others at the firm, we weren't afraid to invest in more specific companies that targeted elements of the financial services stack. And they, it didn't need to be this expansive pitch on day one that you're going to replace all core bank software or be the policy admin system for all of PNC insurance. You have to start somewhere. You have to partner with some of the industry incumbents and some of the channels that are just critical. And I think the real observation here was that with the billions of dollars flowing into direct to consumer fintech and direct to consumer insurtech, we actually thought that would be a catalyst for the incumbents to wake up and shorten sales cycles a little bit and start to realize that they needed to modernize some of the customer experiences and that we expected them to do that through vendors, not through internal projects. And that play has played out, but it plays out slowly. And I would say that even though we've been investing in these industry-specific software companies, like we called out in the piece with Encino, which started really in, in just commercial lending on top of Salesforce, or Shift Technology, which is now becoming a dominant player in insurance fraud detection, but started just in Europe, just with auto claims, really just in France, and was just pushing into the US when we first invested, but now has multi-product, multi-geography, or Mambu, which started in consumer lending, but has really become much more of a core banking system. And that was always the vision from the beginning. But I think that the thesis for this wave was these things take time. And the fact that wave two was happening created more opportunity for entrepreneurs to go after the painful sales cycle of selling to insurance companies and banks. And it's never easy, but easier was enough to go after the massive prize of, of how much is spent on software. And a lot of these systems are still on COBOL. And this, this wave is not over, even though we're talking about wave three of five. This wave is very much still happening. And we're still spending a lot of time with entrepreneurs that are building software going after these verticals. Crow gets fintech. For decades, Crow specialists have watched this industry evolve and helped companies navigate the moments that matter most. Whether finding new sources of funding to fuel growth or responding to complex regulations, visit www.crow.com/fintech to find out how Crow works with fintech companies like yours to help uncover value in volatility. I think that's a really interesting one to kind of counter position against Wave Two because, to your point, I mean, I know of plenty of fintech companies that sort of got into fintech infrastructure or partnering with banks or selling to banks or insurance companies. And a big part of the pitch was, you know, fintech or insurtech is scary. We can help you navigate that, right? And so like all the capital that was going in and funding wave two, much of which maybe wasn't totally sustainable as a standalone business, 
that had this sort of nice side effect for companies building on this third wave of, you know, the incumbents are really scared. They might not be totally looking at it as, oh, all of these companies are going to burn themselves out and there's not any sustainable business models. Like it got scary enough that they had to react to that. And that pressure created more of an opening for these companies to come in and go, hey, you know, we can help you with this. And I, I'll admit it, this is kind of my personal favorite wave. I think I get a little luxury sometimes in the newsletter about, you know, hey, you should try selling this to banks. Banks would really like this too. And I do think there is, I'd love to get your comment on this because I know you work with a lot of founders who sort of are navigating this challenge. There's sort of this very interesting, almost cultural preference, I think, to not sell to banks or insurance companies. And part of it obviously is like it's a longer sales cycle, it's more complex, but I really do think at, to a degree it's like this is just not as much fun. Like these people aren't like us, they're maybe a little bit older, they're a little bit more risk averse, they have different kind of priorities. We don't really speak the same language and like overcoming that almost cultural barrier and crossing the chasm and going, "You know what? We're going to stick in this world and we're going to navigate these 18 to 24 month long sales cycles and you know, we might go out to some dinners that are a little boring and maybe not what we'd like to be doing on our <laughs> Tuesday night in New York. But like, we're going to do this because there is that big prize sitting at the end of that. So how have you seen sort of that almost kind of culture clash and how it's resolved itself over time? It's painful. I mean, it's painful for the investor to, to <laughs> stay patient. It's painful for the team to fight through those challenges and to balance how fast you're moving as a startup with how slow your customer is moving. I think one thing when I zoomed out and thought back on on the companies we did end up investing in, there- one thing that was a common characteristic was the companies that were able to sell to both the incumbents and some of the more established fintechs or insurtechs, right? So if you're an alloy, that means you know you're selling to the Brexes of the world, but you're also able to navigate some community banks that some of us have never heard of and solve the same problem with with the same platform in different ways for those two very different customers. Mm -hmm. And I think if you find a company, and it's not going to happen in a year, it's typically not going to happen in two years. I think some of the fervor in fintech infrastructure that happened as people saw Plaid success and others, there was a wave of really high, highly valued seed companies that were at the beginning of that journey. Yeah. But our Series A investment in Alloy was four and a half years into the life of the company. When you're building real mission-critical infrastructure for banks that are going to allow customers in the door, monitor transactions using your platform, difficult to build that in short order. But if you can find a team and a product that can hunt with both the incumbents and the upstarts, I think that's actually one of the real magical situations because they're able to iterate and build for the future of the industry, but have the addressable market of the incumbents that are just not going away. And I don't think there's the same situation in insurance. Insurance is very different. And we could almost have two separate podcasts about the banking (laughs) world and the insurance world because there's so much nuance to, to each of these things. But I think about coming back to the shift in in our portfolio, which sells to the largest carriers in the world. And when they all saw what Lemonade and others were doing with incredible experiences when you were signing up for a policy, but also the promise of paying out claims instantaneously or much faster than typical, you know, their obvious question was, well, what about fraud? You know, you're going to see if you're going to enter the world of, of digital experiences in that world, 
fraud became the most important burning topic to address if you're going to have that kind of digital presentment and straight through processing of claims. So in that case, I, I wasn't necessarily looking for a software company that was uh, selling to both the incumbents and the upstarts. I was trying to find a team that was patient enough to really land the whales. And there I led a Series C investment and I needed to see more proof that that was happening. And I think you just have to treat each of these sub-industries within financial services with a different lens because they require different levels of patience and different styles. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I think even when you think about selling into banks, I mean, you sort of did a good job of laying out like there are all these different segments and, you know, small fintech companies that you might sell to are vastly different than large sort of at scale fintech companies, which are different, but sort of similar in some ways to community banks, but very different than like large enterprise banks. And so like thinking in terms of very specific segments that you might sell this infrastructure to and knowing those segments well is super important. I see a lot of companies that have success selling into one and sort of assume, oh, well, you know, we sold to this community bank. That must mean we're ready to sell to American Express. It's like, no, no, you're not. You're not anywhere close to being ready to do that. So it's, I think there are lots of those proof points that you need to build over time. And, you know, you mentioned Plaid. I think Plaid is kind of funny because they actually were sort of fintech infrastructure that got in there before wave two. And so the fact that a lot of like fintech startups were using Plaid as a part of their experience, that was very much enabled by the fact that a lot of capital was being dumped into those unbundling companies. I I think it's an interesting question if Plaid had come along at a different time, if they would have been able to ride that same wave, which maybe brings up the reason why waves are such a good metaphor for this. Like you kind of have to catch the wave at the right time. Yeah, and just like the consumer companies take that hook and do more with it, you know, Plaid's innovating a lot, adding new products yeah. and selling to larger enterprises as best they can. And that was Yodely before them, you know, was really, you know, most of their revenue derived from helping banks understand their own data that they were scraping and selling back to them, right? So, you know, it's just, that's why the waves make sense. I think each one of these companies that persists for a long time has to figure out how to create real value relevant to that period of time. I think this wave three is less temporal. I think it's it's more enduring. I think just there's going to be just many iterations of the financial services ecosystem realizing that they need to adopt modern technology and it takes longer for highly yeah. regulated industries like healthcare and financial services to do so. So I think whether it's machine learning or over the last 10 years or- mm-hmm generative AI over the next 10 years, Is it? I think the, the vendors that allow that walk the industry through it and hold their hand through those transitions will create a lot of value. So that brings us to wave four. And I know we sort of promised earlier that we would circle back to some of the concepts touched on here. So what is wave four? Wave four was another thing that everybody talked about a lot, which was kind of fintech is everywhere or the embedded sure. fintech movement. And and again, mm-hmm. you know, not to keep coming back to our portfolio, but this was one where I just was lucky to just see it in investments that my partners had made in some of those vertically oriented companies, you know, the shop flies, the toast, the pro course that we've talked about before. And, you know, ultimately, you know, coming back to that horizontal line of where distribution is on the left and, and risk is on the right distribution is most of the game in financial services. So if, if one of these industry-specific software companies has earned the right through lots of product development and many years of iterating to become the operating system for a construction company or a restaurant or a preschool daycare or, or an e-commerce site, you have the point of sale 
and you can do so much with that. The first step <laughs> was payments. Many have moved beyond just moving the money to various forms of lending. Yeah. And insurance has been much slower to come into the embedded world. And again, there's many reasons why. But this was already happening. And then we started to see a lot of very specific fintech infrastructure companies develop to specifically enable more embedded fintech products. Companies yeah. like Check and in Payroll, very specific other businesses that got started during this wave. I think similar to the way we thought about how I discussed Alloy right, by selling to both fintechs and incumbents, what we look for here is the infrastructure providers that do something really, really well, where not just will a vertical software company that wants to embed card issuing or investment products in, is it good enough for them? Is it also good enough for the incumbents to maybe switch the legacy platform that they might have been using? So in the case of, of investment products, you know, we call out Upfest, which is a company mm -hmm. out of Germany that is embedding investment functionality for fintechs in Europe and has the right to win, in our mind, even the incumbents in terms of how they're handling trading infrastructure and embedding trading experiences for customers. And we feel like those are the companies that ultimately, over time, will be the providers for the embedded fintech wave. And I do feel really confident and passionately that the embedded <laughs> fintech wave is massive and enduring, but I think it's happening much more slowly than people realize. If you're in the boardrooms at a vertical software company, you got a long list of things to work on. Right. And you have a core software product, you're, you're moving money for your customers. You might consider what's next on the fintech side, but it's when we've observed these companies, it's tended to be the, the much more mature businesses that really explore the third, fourth, fifth, sixth financial services product. It's happening. You know, if you, if you observe all of that, that Toast has done as a public company in financial services for their customer or Shopify, I mean, such an aggressive, uh, great strategy around financial services. I mean, it happens, but I don't think the hundreds of smaller companies that have more limited resources can move as fast as some of these larger companies can. So I think I think this market is here. I think it's happening, but I think it's happening more slowly than a lot of investors thought it would. So I think the embedded fintech everywhere is still underway, and I think we'll be here for a while, but I think it's been slower than people thought it would. I think the every company will be a fintech company line, which everybody parrots, should really be every company will eventually be a fintech company because the eventually is yeah. so key there. I mean, it takes a long time. And I, I was thinking about that in the case of Procore. I was fascinated, by the way, to see that you guys had invested in Procore a long time ago and that just fairly recently they've been getting into fintech and they actually have like an executive who is fully in charge of fintech full time now. And, you know, I, I've dug into some of the stuff that they're doing there and it's fascinating because it does point to this ability, I think, that embedded finance has that's kind of unique, which is it can actually find like new financial services problems that no one is solving, right? Because they, they're they so embedded in the workflows and in the sort of intri intricate, like kind of day-to-day -day dealings of all of the different parts of an ecosystem that they sit in that no one outside that ecosystem would be able to understand, right? So like the, the one that I wrote about in my newsletter with Procore, 
was, you know, materials financing, right? And like, you would have no idea if you didn't work in construction that when Amazon is building a big data center, the people who are actually financing that work, practically speaking, are the subcontractors who buy materials and arrange labor and do the work and then have to submit invoices that get checked and rechecked and checked again three times and it takes 90 days and then the payments filter back down to them. That's a very like unique financial services problem, cash flow problem that should be solved and that banks probably get exposed to indirectly when a subcontractor comes and knocks on their door and says, hey, I need a personal loan or I need a you know increase in my credit line on my personal credit card or whatever. And the bank looks at it as, well, this is just like a weird person who might not be that credit worthy. I don't really want to do this. And what they're not seeing is they've won a contract to do electrical work for the new Amazon data center being built. And they have rights to collect on the work that they are doing for that, that you can actually underwrite against, right? And so it takes someone like Procore, who has an ex, you know pretty established place in that market. They are the operating system for construction companies, and they see all of this data and all of these new projects. It takes someone like that to be able to start to assemble all of those pieces into kind of a new financial services product that hasn't existed before. You could do this for any industry, right? And it's what's really fascinating about it is it's different each time. And the right. way we've seen it play out in in all of these different verticals. I mean, I, I I sit on the board of a company called Brightwheel, which is vertical SaaS for preschool daycare, moving billions of dollars through the platform because mm-hmm. it's one of the biggest costs in in all of our lives. And so you think about the financial services use cases for for what the leaders of a preschool or daycare facility are dealing with, very different from a construction company or a restaurant. So, and when you're in that boardroom. When you're on that product theme, you can't just look to the others and, and replicate what they've done. You can't just say payroll worked here, so it's going to work here, or capital advance worked here. You have to really just listen to your customers, and and I think that's what the best companies do. But I I do think you know there is now an API for everything. So when you're ready to do it, thanks to the billions of dollars that have, have flown into the B two B fintech infrastructure market, these options are there. So. As a fintech investor, I think it's it's okay to get excited about the application layer and not the infrastructure layer sometimes. That's why I invested in Brightwheel. So as a fintech-led thesis. So it's right. you know, I think that's the way these things kind of intertwine. Yeah, yeah. The idea that fintech investors are going out and finding these vertical software companies that have nothing to do with fintech and going, we love the potential of what you can do. And they're going, yeah. what do you mean? And it's like, you know, I mean, it's it's a pretty cool light bulb moment where it's like, you have to actually kind of rein yourself back and, and not force it because you have to really understand that each industry is different. Right, yeah. right. And then they're like, we have a roadmap here and yeah. we can't just like do this right away. It's the finding them at the right time and not forcing it. And I, I do think you're right. I mean, these these are going to be more mature companies by and large that sort of add fintech on. And I think, you know, Procore and it sounds like Brightwheel, a couple others are good examples of that. All right. So wrap us up. What is the fifth wave? I think everyone is on the edge of their seats waiting to find out what the fifth and I guess most current wave of fintech is. Yeah, I think the fifth wave is a little bit dealing with all of the investment that has come into the category over the prior 10 to 20 years. And now that they're there's a pretty well-established set of players. If you double-click on any specific fintech infrastructure opportunity or any vertical, there's going to be players already yeah. attacking it. So I think 
Mm-hmm. Now what we're seeing some of the most talented entrepreneurs attack is, you know, what we called orchestration layers, which is the nerdy, you know, kind of VC term for it. <laughs> but it's really abstracting away work that yeah. a team could do if you wanted to put a team of product and engineering and industry specific people, whether, you know, fraud in the case of alloy or money movement in the case of a modern treasury that's not in our portfolio. I mean, these are mm-hmm. companies that essentially obfuscate and abstract away important work that needs to be done. No different than what Twilio and SendGrid and Auth0 outside of financial services have done in our portfolio for developers across other industries. Mm-hmm. And you do the hard work of, of building that, that mission-critical infrastructure that essentially replaces the work that really expensive people at these organizations have to do. And these companies are generating a lot of value and kind of making sense of all of the data that's now available out there. I mean, Alloy has so many vendors that have been integrated underneath them that are really differentiated, but it's very difficult for a bank or even an enterprise fintech to manage all of that themselves, keep tabs on what's next in the market, kind of future-proofing yourself against what's next in the fraud world Mm -hmm. by leveraging an orchestration layer that's going to be your tool to keep up with all of the innovation in the space. And that's where we see kind of the most recent waves, but there's bigger waves coming, which we touch on with the potential for real-time payments, you know, some of the convergence, we talk a lot about healthcare and fintech finally converging, you know, the two slowest markets to adopt the cloud coming together and and, and finally creating some opportunities there. You know, there's lots of exciting stuff happening, but, but we've seen kind of this, this last wave was kind of these layers above it all to help everyone leverage the innovation. Yeah, no, I think that's a good observation. I mean, it, it feels like the ultimate destiny of a lot of fintech infrastructure companies is to either sort of get orchestrated by someone else or to do the orchestrating. But I, I do think that all of these companies that get to a point eventually where it's just like, there's way too much out there for us to go manage individually. Can someone help us sort of wrangle all of this and pull it together? And, you know, I mean, if you if you go back into the distant, distant past of financial services, a lot of the behemoths that you look at in like the core banking world, like they started out playing a role of like helping orchestrate technology for banks and ended up in this really sort of sticky position. So I totally agree with that. It's fraught though, right? Because, you know, the entire banking as a service movement over the last five years or so is a great starting point. So if you want to launch a company, you've raised right. some capital and you really need to get to market, some of those platforms are awesome for that. Yeah. But if you don't create that middleware yourself, if you're serious about long-term building and product differentiation in year three, five, seven of your consumer-facing company, yeah, you're going to be stuck with the decisions of your of your vast provider. Yeah. And I think, you know, our thesis was more, I think the serious customers will build that layer themselves and then ultimately pick the best of breed for these the specific needs of a financial services company, whether that's fraud, issuing, data privacy tokenization. I think these are things Is that there- you don't want to handle yourself, but having a layer that tells you who you need to work with for each of those is too challenging if you're in the business of innovating. It's kind of the distinction between a layer that dictates to you what you have to pick versus a layer that enables you to more efficiently sort of pick and deal with the different companies that you want to work with. And that's a really tricky, almost like architecture choice, right? Because there are always people knocking on the door going, 
hey, we want to get into market super quickly. Well, if you want to get into market super quickly, we have to dictate to you exactly how it's going to work, but we can get you in market in a month or six months. But the cost on the other side of that is, yeah, it locks you into the choices that they made and doesn't allow you to innovate. So that distinction, that makes a lot of sense. I want to wrap up by circling back to what you said just a minute ago on things that are next. Obviously, waves continue. So while some of these waves, as we've talked about, will be durable and will last for a while, some of the other ones, like wave two with the unbundling of fintech, eh, are arguably sort of over. New things are going to come in. What are some of the the potential waves? This is a hard question because you have to sort of look at it almost with the benefit of hindsight. But having just gone through this exercise, does anything stand out as a potential catalyst for a new wave that we should be paying attention to? I would call it potential because we're not seeing the screaming use cases yet. But I think think the launch of more options for real-time payments in the US and Europe will unleash some new applications. I think it's not what we do to come up with the ideas, but I think we're going to see some entrepreneurs come up with some pretty cool applications of cutting out the slow money movement that the most most developed countries have been have been stuck with for a long time in, in mm-hmm. Brazil and India and, and China these things have been solved for. But but here in the US and in Europe, I think faster money movements can unlock some really interesting applications mm-hmm. and some infrastructure opportunities. But that's the one we're paying closest attention to right now. I totally agree. I had the head of payments at the Federal Reserve on the podcast. I love yeah, I listened to that. That was a good one to nerd out on. Yeah, it was fun. It was a really fun conversation. And I of all of the things he said, I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was we are building FedNow, the real-time payments network, yep. as a platform for innovation. And, you know, ACH was not built that way because you didn't build with developers in mind in the 70s. That just wasn't how you built software, but it is today. And so it might take a while, but I, I totally agree with that take. It's going to be up to the entrepreneurs to figure it out. But I think some of those industry-specific things you were talking about, back to the construction example, I think faster money movement on the B2B side um, is going to unlock a lot of, it's going to solve real problems for people and remove a lot of the risk capital that has been plugging these holes for a long time, you know, trillions of dollars of risk capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being able to suck risk out of those areas was actually another thing that came up in that podcast with uh, Mark Gould at the Fed. So no, I completely agree with that. We will leave it there. I could keep nerding out on this stuff for a long time. We'll have to have you back on the podcast to explore some of these themes in a little bit more detail. Maybe once we launch InsureTech Takes, our sister publication, we can have you come back and we can dive even more deeply into an insurance. But until then, Charles, thank you so much for joining me. Super fun. Always good talking to you, Alec. Talk to you soon. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.